Now Dinah, the daughter Leah had born to Jacob, went out to visit the women of the land. When Shechem, son of Hamor the Hivite, the ruler of that area, saw her, he took her and violated her. His heart was drawn to Dinah, daughter of Jacob, and he loved the girl and spoke tenderly to her. And Shechem said to his father Hamor, Get me this girl as my wife. When Jacob heard that his daughter Dinah had been defiled, his sons were in the field with his livestock, so he kept quiet about it until they came home. Then Shechem's father Hamor went out to talk with Jacob. Now Jacob's sons had come in from the fields as soon as they heard what had happened. They were filled with grief and fury because Shechem had done it a disgraceful thing in Israel by lying with Jacob's daughter, a thing that should not be done. But Hamor said to them, My son Shechem has his heart set on your daughter. Please give her to him as his wife. Intermarry with us. Give us your daughters and take our daughters for yourselves. You can settle among us. The land is open to you. Live in it, trade in it and acquire property in it. Then Shechem said to Dinah's father and brothers, Let me find favour in your eyes, and I will give you whatever you ask. Make the price for the bride and the gift I am to bring as great as you like, and I will pay whatever you ask me. Only give me the girl as my wife. Because their sister Dinah had been defiled, Jacob's sons replied deceitfully as they spoke to Shechem and his father Hamor. They said to them, we can't do such a thing. We can't give our sister to a man who is not circumcised. That would be a disgrace to us. We will give our consent to you on one condition, only that you become like us by circumcising all your males. Then we will give you our daughters and take your daughters for for ourselves. We'll settle among you and become one people with you But if you will not agree to be circumcised, we'll take our sister and go. Their proposal seemed good to Hamor and his son Shechem, the young man who was was the most honoured of all his father's household, lost no time in doing what they said, because he was delighted with Jacob's daughter. So Hamor and his son Shechem went to the gate of their city to speak to their fellow townsmen. These men are friendly towards us, they said. Let them live in our land and trade in it. The land has plenty of room for them. We can marry their daughters and they can marry ours. But the men will consent to live with us as one people only on the condition that our males be circumcised, as they themselves are. Won't their livestock, their property and all their other animals become ours? So let us give our consent to them and they will settle among us. All the men who went out of the city gate agreed with Hamor and his son Shechem, and every male in the city was circumcised. Three days later, while all of them were still in pain, two of Jacob's sons, Simeon and Levi, Dinah's brothers, took their swords and attacked the unsuspecting city, killing every male. They put Hamor and his son Shechem to the sword, and took Dinah from Shechem's house and left. 
the sons of Jacob came upon the dead bodies and looted the city where their sister had been defiled. They seized their flocks and herds and donkeys and everything else of theirs in the city and out in the fields. They carried off all their wealth and all their women and children, taking as plunder everything in the houses. Then Jacob said to Simeon and Levi, You have brought trouble on me by making me a stench to the Canaanites and Perizzites, the people living in this land. We are few in number, and if they join forces against me and attack me, I and my household will be destroyed. But they replied, Should he have treated our sister like a prostitute? This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Dear Lord and Heavenly Father, we, uh, we thank you for your word, but we acknowledge, Lord, that sometimes the things that we read are difficult to understand uh, and we need your wisdom uh, and your guidance. We need your spirit to be at work in us to help us to know what it is that you're saying uh, about the world and our condition as human beings uh, and about the grace of the gospel. And so, Lord, we pray as we look at this difficult passage that you would open our eyes to see your truth uh, and to receive it in faith. We ask it for Jesus' sake. Amen. Uh, hopefully you should have received uh, an outline for the series on your way in. Uh, if you didn't, hopefully there's some floating around, perhaps on the front table, the table just near the door or on the back table. Uh, you might be able to pick up afterwards. But uh, I've discovered in recent times that uh, wherever I go, I, I seem to keep having a, a very similar kind of conversation. Uh, I had another one last week. The conversation which I keep having is that people tell me that they've stopped watching the news uh, because they can't do it anymore. They sort of can't deal with that anymore. Uh, it's too depressing. It's just kind of one negative story after another. Uh, there's so many accidents, uh, so many problems, so much tragedy, so much war, so many lives ravaged by evil, and they, they, just, they, they struggle to be confronted with that day after day. But it's all very well, isn't it, to turn the television off, uh, to stop watching the news, if the only evil that we ever experience in our lives is out there, uh, on the other side of the world. What do you do when the misery and the injustice is actually the misery and injustice that you've experienced, uh, or that your neighbour has experienced, or your friend or your family member has experienced? You can't just sort of turn off the television and say, well, I'm not going to pay attention to it. Genesis 34, for all its strangeness and its abruptness and horror, helps us to address a very important question, which is, how do we live in an evil world surrounded by evil events? How do we respond to people who have perpetrated great evil? 
How do we live in an evil world as the people of God? How do we live in an evil world as people meant to be extending the blessing of God to people as much in need of grace as we are? We're starting uh, this morning our third and last series working through Genesis and on the way through we've seen how God created a good world, the world that God created was good, it was supposed to be uh, holy and pure and just but because of our sin against God it's not like that anymore. The world has been plunged into evil and ruin by human beings turning away from God This time last year, we then looked uh, at the life of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and we saw that God, even though we turned against God and the world was plunged into chaos, God set in plan, uh, 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 he set in motion a plan to redeem the world, to uh, make the world right again, to put the world right through uh, a descendant of Abraham. And we're picking up now this morning, we're beginning again uh, in the life of Jacob and his sons. And it's clear, I think, from Genesis 34 that the world uh, is just as much in need of God's rescue as it ever was. The passage that we're looking at this morning is a sorry tale. Uh, It's a story of rape and violence. Uh, In the first verse, we meet Dinah, the daughter of Jacob's first wife, Leah, Dinah goes out on what she probably expected would be uh, a very ordinary visit to the women of the land, but it turns out to be uh, an experience that she will likely never forget. Uh, During her trip, Shechem, uh, the son of Hamor, saw Dinah, he liked what he saw, uh, and he decided to take uh, what he saw for himself, to impose himself, uh, and he grabs her and he rapes her. There are a few things I think more terrifying uh, than sexual abuse. Uh, Most people I think would rather suffer just about any other kind of abuse than, you know, if you had a choice, of course the reality is we don't have a choice, do we? But I think for most people, if they had a choice, they'd just about take anything over uh, the horror of sexual abuse. There's something about it which is so deeply compromising so invasive, so distressing, uh, it's an appalling violation of a person's dignity. Uh, And it's such a real real thing, isn't it? Uh, It's not just on the pages of Genesis 34, uh, but I think the statistics are, I don't know what they are in Australia, but at least in the States, it's something like one in five adults have experienced some form of sexual abuse. What Shechem did to Dinah was abhorrent. He violated her dignity, he violated her purity, he violated her body, he violated her in every way that you could conceive that a person could be violated. And in many ways, the rest of the chapter is an attempt to reckon with that. Uh, It's an attempt to ask the question, in the light of that reality, how ought we to respond How do we respond to a world which is like that? Well, the rest of the chapter shows two attempts to try and put that reality right. And the first attempt, surprisingly, to put things right, actually comes from the perpetrator. It comes from Shechem. 
Astonishingly and disturbingly, I think, Shechem's lust and rape turns into what appears to be genuine love and gentleness. So we're told in verse 3, his heart was drawn to Dinah, daughter of Jacob, and he loved her, uh, he loved the girl and spoke tenderly to her. Literally, he spoke to her heart. So he's, he, 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 he's somehow recognised what he's done is wrong and, and, and is changed in some sense. He says, uh, and Shechem says to his father, Hamor, get me this girl as my wife. Uh, you might wonder what Dinah thought about all that, this, uh, the horror of rape, followed by this kind of expression of tenderness and love. But we don't hear, actually, what she thought of it. But it's also important to understand, I think, that in the culture of the day, Shechem's desire to marry Dinah was actually, in some sense, hard as it may be for us to understand, it was actually the honourable or responsible thing to do. So even in later biblical law, if an unmarried, if a, if a married, if a, sorry, if a man assaulted an unmarried woman, he was obligated to marry her, and he could never divorce her. She wasn't obliged to marry him, uh, but if she or her father were willing to let that happen, then the man was obligated to marry. Now that might sound to us like a horrific situation. But in a society where unmarried women were vulnerable uh, and in a society actually where people who'd been abused were probably more vulnerable than others, it was an attempt to restore honour and dignity to a situation that was without honour and dignity. That's not to excuse the terrible crime that Shechem committed but it's just to acknowledge that that in some sense... What he is doing is an attempt to restore honour and dignity in a bad situation. So Shechem and his father Hamor come to Jacob then, and uh, to, to Jacob and his sons, and they say, Hamor says uh, in verse 8, My son Shechem has his heart set on your daughter. Please give her to him as his wife. Intermarry with us, give us your daughters, and take our daughters for yourselves. You can settle among us. The land is open to you. Live in it, trade in it, and acquire property in it. Hamor makes a pretty generous offer. Uh, It's possible to take that offer cynically, I think, and to go, well, uh, he's just interested in kind of, you know, getting this woman for his son and, uh, you know, just trying to get land and and cattle for himself. But I think that's uh, probably unfair. His offer is is for unity between these two families. His offer is for unity in the light of an horrific action by his son. Uh, He offers for them to live together, uh, the two families, and to share the land and, and their possessions. Even more astonishing, I think, is the offer of Shechem, uh, the perpetrator, who offers to to pay whatever the bride price is that they ask. He says says in verse 11, let me find favour in your eyes and I will give you whatever you ask. Make the price for the bride uh, and the gift I am to bring as great as you like and I'll pay whatever you ask me. Only give me the girl as my wife. 
The expression to find favour in your eyes, literally to find grace in your eyes, is one that's often used in Genesis of God's own people. So it's used of Noah finding favour in God's eyes uh, and of Abraham finding favour in God's eyes. So Shechem is asking to find favour in the eyes of Jacob and his sons despite what he's done, despite the the, the terrible uh, deed that he's done. He offers to pay whatever the necessary price is to make amends for his actions. Now you might be thinking, well, as if offering to marry this this poor woman, uh, as if offering to marry her and paying a, a you know a bride price is enough to make up for what he's done. And of course, you're right. It, it, it's not it's not enough to make up for it. The point of this passage is not to say that what Shechem did was enough in, in, in making up for the rape. The point, at least, is that Shechem and Hamor's desire was to put an evil deed right. Whether, the, whether, they did, whether what they tried to do was the right thing is almost irrelevant, I think, actually. The point is, something had happened, something terrible had happened... How can that be put right? You see, Shechem's actions raise an important question. Here are two groups of people, two families that God has made and that God loves. And something unspeakably evil has happened between them. How do you deal with that? How can that be put right? How can the world go on? How can those families ever have anything to do with each other? How can the victim and the perpetrator ever have anything to do with each other? How can you regain normality? How can you put back together lives that have been utterly shattered by evil and injustice? That's not an academic question. That's not a question of, well, I wonder what they should have done in Genesis 34. No, that's a real question, isn't it? Because evil things happen all the time. And there are people here whose lives have been shattered by evil and injustice. And there are people that will meet today and tomorrow and the day after whose lives have been shattered by injustice and evil. How do you put back together lives that have been shattered by rape? How do you put back together lives that have been shattered by murder? How do you put back together lives that have been shattered by violence? Or by shonky business deals and fraud which sends someone to the wall? How do you put back together lives that have been shattered by systematic bullying in the workplace or in the schoolyard? How do you put back together lives that have been shattered by repeated unfaithfulness and deceit? How do you put back together lives that have been shattered by drug and alcohol abuse? And not just how do you get on with your life, but how can there ever be reconciliation between the victim and the perpetrator? Are people always destined to live on opposite ends of the planet? 
It seems an impossible goal, I think. Uh, I'll never forgetting. Uh, I'll never forget so, sitting in someone's lounge room uh, as they said to me, and they pointed across to another part of the room, and they said, "Carl, that's where it happened." That's where I came home to find my daughter being stabbed to death. How do you move on from that? How do you reconcile with the perpetrator? How do you forgive them? How can you ever be in the same room again? Someone told me recently uh, that a person they know is about to be released from prison after serving time for murder. How can you ever hope to make up for that? How do you get on with your life? How can you expect other people to kind of overlook that? if they know that that's the kind of thing that lives in your past. Shechem's instincts were right to aim at reconciliation. He was doing the right thing. But the offer of marriage and the payment of a bride price is not enough to reconcile after such a hideous uh, evil. What Genesis 34 does is to show us the complexity of living in a world marred by sin. A a world marred by our own sin and a world marred by the sin of others. So Dinah has been raped. A terrible injustice has been committed. How do you come back from that? Well, Shechem has tried to uh, do something by offering to marry and to pay the bride price. Next, we see how Jacob and his sons try and respond to the injustice. When Jacob hears what's happened, uh, his first response is to wait uh, and to hold his peace. But when his sons come home, they're furious. They're furious, uh, understandably, about what has happened to their sister. And they hatch a plan to make Shechem uh, and all his friends pay. Despite Shechem and Hamor's attempt at reconciliation, the brothers want revenge. We're told in verse 13, because their sister Dinah had been defiled, Jacob's sons replied deceitfully as they spoke to Shechem and his father Hamor. Their plan is described significantly using the same term that's used earlier in Genesis to describe Jacob. Jacob was deceitful in stealing the birthright of his brother Esau. And now Jacob's own sons are deceitful in the way that they hatched this plan of revenge on Shechem and Hamor and other innocent victims. Their proposal was for Shechem and his clan to be circumcised. Uh, That might seem odd, but circumcision was the sign that God had given to his people. Uh, And Jacob's sons say that without it, without that sign, it would be a disgrace for Shechem to marry their sister. Well, we're told in verse 19 that Shechem couldn't wait to comply. Uh, He didn't waste any time, we're told, uh, in being circumcised. He he was so taken with Jacob's daughter uh, that that's what he did. 
Uh, and then they go out and have the difficult task of convincing their fellow countrymen to be circumcised as well. Uh, they say in verse 23, won't their livestock and their property and all, our, uh, all their other animals become ours? So let us give our consent to them uh, and they will settle among us. Again, you could look uh, at Hamor's motivation cynically and say, uh, well, he just wants to get uh, the cattle for himself and, and, and whatever. But again, he's, what he's talking about is two clans sharing together what they've got. Perhaps the most tragic thing uh, about what Hamor and Shechem say is in verse 21, when they say to their fellow countrymen, these men are at peace with us. <laughs> Why not do this? They've acted in good faith. That's what they're saying. But they couldn't be more wrong. They'd made an offer of reconciliation and restitution. They'd offered to put things right. They thought that had been accepted, but it hadn't. So Hamor and Shechem managed to convince their countrymen to be circumcised but on the third day, when uh, the men are still recovering, when they're still in pain, Jacob's two sons, Simeon and Levi, take their swords. They go to the city and they plunder it. They kill all the men. They capture their wives and children. They steal their flocks and herds and they take anything else that they can get their hands on. When Jacob hears what they've done, he rebukes them, and rightly so, because what they've done is atrocious and they've brought trouble on their family by their actions. How do Jacob's sons deal with the evil of Shechem? They take revenge. They take violent, bloody, ruthless revenge. That pattern of behaviour, again, is not restricted to Genesis 34. That pattern of behaviour of evil dealt with by revenge, finds its place in our world every day. I think of a place, uh, it's not so bad anymore, but I think of a place like Northern Ireland, uh, where you go back a few years, every action was dealt with with a kind of equal and opposite reaction. One evil repaid with another evil. Think of a place actually like South Sudan, two warring tribes. They did that to us, we'll do it back to them. God's people aren't immune from that kind of strategy either. Christian history is marred by examples of Christians taking revenge and using violence. We might think of the Crusades as kind of the most obvious example of that. And you and I might not be likely to take up that kind of violence in our situation, but the desire for revenge and violence as a way to solve our problems is still powerfully attractive. It's tempting for us to respond to the erosion of Christian freedoms, not with violence maybe, but certainly with rudeness and aggression or to respond with bitterness and, and anger 
It's tempting to write angry letters to the newspaper in response to other angry letters that have been written to the newspaper. Or to write angry Facebook posts in response to angry anti-Christian blog posts. It's tempting, having suffered unjustly, to find ourselves really, really wanting to see other people suffer. So, another kid hurts you at school and your greatest desire is that someone would hurt them back. It's tempting when your husband or wife treats you badly to want to pay them back by treating them badly. They leave their chore undone and you leave your chore undone as well. Just to spite them. Just to make them pay. The spirit of revenge is alive and well within every single one of us. Just like it was alive and well in Jacob's sons. It's just they had swords and the means to do the evil that their heart desired. And while it's bad enough that we might do that to our fellow Christians, it's even worse when we do it to people who aren't Christians. And it's worse still when we do it to people who are genuinely remorseful and who are genuinely sorry for what they've done. So they come to us and they say, I've done something terrible, please forgive me. And we take revenge. Spiteful, vicious, angry revenge. Perhaps the thing which Genesis 34 highlights most of all is that God's people are as much in need of grace and forgiveness as those who don't know God. Shechem and Hamor didn't know the the God of Abraham, Isaac and Jacob. And although Jacob himself is a reformed character, his sons certainly aren't. And ironically, in just a few chapters' time in Genesis 38, we find Judah, another son of Jacob, using his daughter-in-law as a prostitute. Shechem is not the only person in this whole story who's in need of grace because of great evil. So are Jacob's sons and so are we. So there's this terrible, there's this terrible evil. Dinah's been raped. How do you come back from that? How, how do you make that right? There's two, two ways that these people have tried to do it. The Hamor and Shechem, they've tried to make things right by marriage and paying that price. And uh, Jacob's sons have tried to deal with that by, uh, by taking revenge. But neither of those seems like the ultimate solution, does it? What should they have done? Uh, when Jacob rebukes his son in, sons in verse 30, they respond with a question, should he have treated our sister like a prostitute? He treated their sister as a prostitute. What other option did they have? I think this is an ugly episode in every way. No good, I think. No good happens in this chapter. 
But in the seeds of the brother's deceit, I think, lies the answer to a better approach. Perhaps the greatest tragedy is that the real answer lay so close to hand. The greatest evil was that the brothers turned circumcision, God's sign of his promise to fix the world, they turned that great sign of God's promise into an opportunity for vengeance. If ever there was a time that God needed to fix the world, this was it. Circumcision was supposed to be a reminder, a means of reminding people of God's promise to put the world right through a descendant of Abraham. One day, someone's going to come, God's going to send one man to, to fix the world. It was a sign pointing to God's promise to undo the effects of the fall, to turn back the clock, to undo what it was that Adam and Eve had plunged us all into. It was supposed to be a means by which people who weren't part of the family of Abraham, Isaac and Jacob, people just like Shechem and Hamor, it was supposed to be a means by which people like that could be swept up in God's promise. It was supposed to be a sign of God's promise to forgive people and to make people righteous and blameless. It was supposed to be an opportunity of bringing blessing to the world. But it was turned into an opportunity for revenge. Should Shechem have treated their sister like a prostitute? No, he shouldn't have. It was vile, appalling. But should Jacob's sons have taken vengeance into their own hands? No. It was vile and appalling what they did. Instead of slaughtering them on the back of this enforced circumcision, Levi and Simeon should have said something like this. You want to know the bride price so that you can marry our sister? What price can you pay to make up for our sister's defilement? There's no price that you can pay to make that right. And there's nothing that we can do to make that right either. But God made a promise to our grandfather. He made a promise that one day he'll send a man, one of our descendants... And that man will put this world right. And that man will put what you've done right. And he's given us a sign so that we wouldn't ever forget that promise. It's an odd sign. It's a sign of circumcision. So that we wouldn't forget that one day that descendant will come. And all we have to do is to humble ourselves before God and to trust that that's what he's going to do. To acknowledge our sin, to acknowledge that we need that and to trust in God's promise. There's no price that you can pay. But if you join with us in trusting that promise of God, then maybe you can marry our sister. And maybe we can be one family instead of two.
That is, this evil situation was not an opportunity for vengeance. It was an opportunity to preach the gospel. It was an opportunity to be a blessing to the world. It was an opportunity to point to what God would do in Jesus. You see, what we most deeply need is not revenge and it's not our own kind of paltry, shabby efforts to try and remake the world after we've smashed it to pieces. What we need is the cross. What we need is the cross of Jesus where God brings us back from great evil. It's only in the cross that we can break down the dividing wall of hostility between enemies, between people who are natural enemies because of the injustices that we've done to each other. It's only in the cross where sin is decisively paid for, where it's wiped out, where it's covered over, where it's atoned for. And the cross is so powerful, it can heal even the damage of sexual abuse. And the cross is so powerful that it can even atone for sexual assault. It can heal the damage of every sin. It can cover every sin that we could possibly commit if we humble ourselves before our crucified Saviour. That's not to say that everything might be put back together this side of Jesus' return. We still might have to live the rest of our lives with deep pain and deep anguish over the things that have happened to us. Or we might have to live the rest of our lives cautiously protecting ourselves from the evil desires of people around us. But the cross and the work of Jesus gives us a path to newness. It gives us a path to a new world, a better world, a world where people are remade in the image of Christ, a new world where every evil is done away with, where it's destroyed and cast out. Those words of revelation, and there will be no evil there. I love the words of Samwise Gamgee in uh, and to Gandalf in Lord of the Rings, uh, the return of the king, when he asks Gandalf, he says, will everything sad become untrue? That's the hope of the gospel, that every sad, terrible thing that we have experienced will become untrue, as though it never happened. In what world is it ever conceivable that both victim and perpetrator could sit down together? But that's the hope of the gospel. That's the hope that we celebrated this morning in the Lord's Supper. The hope that one day we'll sit together around the wedding supper of the Lamb. Not just you, me and Jesus, but you and me and everyone who has ever done evil to us who's trusted in Jesus as well. And everyone to whom we have ever done evil who's trusted in Jesus as well. And through the powerful work of the Holy Spirit, that hope 
is breaking into our present reality. Even now we're already sitting down together as enemies reconciled by the blood of Jesus. It's so hard to believe that that's true. Uh, but it happens. I love that story of Corrie Ten Boom. I know I've shared it before and you've probably heard it before where she met one of the guards from the concentration camp where she, where she and her sister had been, where her sister had died. And she was able, by the grace of God, to forgive that man. That's what Shechem needed. That's what Dinah needed. That's what Jacob's sons needed. And that's what we all need. Because all of us are victims of evil in one way or another. And all of us are perpetrators of evil in one way or another. And all of us have perpetrated evil against God himself. And yet God extends to us his mercy and his forgiveness through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. The evil that you and I experience is not an opportunity for vengeance, but an opportunity to preach the gospel. It's an opportunity for us to believe the gospel and for us to tell people what God has promised and which has finally come to pass in Jesus. Jacob and his sons held in their hands the means for moving beyond the hideous history of rape. They held that in their hands in the form of God's promise to put the world right. Marriage and paying a bride price couldn't do, couldn't put the world back together again. But God has... He's done it in the death and the resurrection of his beloved son. Let's pray. Dear Lord and Heavenly Father, some of us here have suffered great evil. Lord, perhaps some of us here have suffered great evil which no one else knows about except you. Lord, we pray that you would draw near to those people and that they would know the hope of the gospel. A world where everything sad will come untrue. A world where evil and injustice will be put right A world where our own sins and injustices have been put right as well. Lord, we pray that as victims of injustice and evil in whatever guise they come, that we would be people who don't take revenge but preach the gospel that in Christ there is forgiveness for every person who humbles themselves at the foot of the cross. And Lord, thank you that that truth is breaking into our world and that people who have done great evil 
are turning to repent and to trust in Jesus. And Lord, we pray that we too, as people who've done great evil against you and against each other, people in whom the seeds of revenge and lust and greed and anger and enmity, people in whom those things lie deep within us, we pray that we would be people too who embrace the gospel and trust that the blood of Christ is enough to cover over our sins as well. And not simply enough to forgive them, Lord, but to root them out of our hearts and by the power of your spirit to remake us to be like Jesus Christ. Lord, help us to be people who preach the gospel in a world marred by sin. We ask it for Jesus' sake. Amen.